What is the most powerful tool you have ever used? Many tools in this world, tools for music, as we've just heard, and tools of many kinds. What's the most powerful tool you have ever used? Uh, my my four-year-old is quite fascinated by heavy machinery. And while I've never uh, driven a bulldozer or an excavator or even a front loader or a backhoe, like, like every young boy, I can imagine the sensation of putting one of those things into gear or of engaging the throttle of one of the fighter jets that I spent 20 years helping to build. What is the most powerful tool you have ever used? What in this world wields the greatest power, whether for good or for evil? Some say it's wealth. Others might say it's weapons. But as you look over human history, and as you consider mankind's greatest advancements and mankind's greatest atrocities, well, the answer becomes clear. It's the same answer if you zoom in and simply focus on your own life, your, your own family, your own household, your own church. I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 3, verse 1, as we seek the answer to that question. You can find it on page 230 in the second half of the Pew Bible. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Let us pray. Father, only your word and your work can transform our hearts and our lives. And we, so, we pray that we may hear your voice in all the words that you have spoken that we may be changed by our hearing. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So what in this world wields the greatest power? It's not wealth. It's not weapons. It's words. 
Specifically, it's ideas, ideas communicated with words. So then there's a sense in which the most powerful tool any of us have ever used is our tongue. The most glorious advancements in human history find their origin in ideas communicated through words. The words of the Declaration of Independence of the United States of America and all the writings and speeches of that time, declaring that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. The words of William Wilberforce leading the movement to abolish the slave trade in the British Empire, followed by the words of so many here in the States to bring an end to it here. Like the 271 brief words of Abraham Lincoln at Gettysburg near the end of our civil war over slavery. Words that have inspired many others to likewise fight for freedom ever since. Like Martin Luther King Jr., almost 100 years later, the words of his famous I Have a Dream speech, calling for a nation in which his four little children would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Of course, all these words, they find their power to bring about a better society because and only insofar as they align with the truths of God's words, the words that all people are made in the likeness of God. James chapter 3, verse 9. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. The words that we, as the pinnacle of God's creation, are to be holy as He is holy. 1 Peter 1.15 The words that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians 5.10 The words that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 Truths communicated through words have led to the greatest advancements in human history. Just as lies communicated through words have led to the greatest atrocities in human history. The lie that some groups of people are inferior to others can be justly owned as slaves. The lie that some groups of people are worse than inferior, but are actually labens unvertes labens, life unworthy of life. Words first used to justify and demand the extermination of the Jews by the Nazis. Words now used to justify the homicide of preborn children in their mother's wombs in our nation today. Life unworthy of life. And now we have the pervasive lie that God makes mistakes. God makes mistakes when assigning biological sex. The lie that your gender can be separated from your sex, that this is the explanation behind any and every sense of social awkwardness you may ever feel, that you can actually take a measures to, to fix God's mistake, causing irreparable harm to your body and your life. Of course, all of these lies simply echo the serpent's first lie in the Garden of Eden. The lie that God is not seeking our best interests. The lie that God's ways are not best. That disobedience will not lead to ruin and death. That we should just follow the desires of our hearts, trusting what seems best in our own eyes. Words have tremendous power, both for good and for evil. That's the main message of our passage. Words have tremendous power, both for good and for evil. And we don't have to look at the culture-changing events and shifts in human history to see the power of words. 
We need only look at the events of our own lives, our own families, our own households. Words spoken between spouses that can't be taken back. Words spoken between parents and children that can't be taken back, whether loving or hateful, constructive or destructive. Sticks and stones are nothing compared to words spoken in close relationships. And that includes in churches. And it's here that James begins his passage, recognizing the great power of words, he warns, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That is, in the final judgment to come, which he already mentioned in the previous chapter, chapter 2, verse 13, and this final judgment he'll mention again in each of the next two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5. Now, what that will mean for unbelievers who knowingly teach falsehood, well, well, that's one thing, but what being judged with greater strictness will mean for genuine believers who are careless with their words and inadvertently teach error within the church, well, well James doesn't say what that really means. What is that greater strictness? What is that judgment? Whatever it is, it's not something to be taken lightly. That's clear. So while we don't know what this judgment will entail, we certainly know what the standard is against which our words will be judged. It's what James has referred to as the word of truth and the perfect law, the law of liberty. That is God's words. God's words revealed in the Scriptures are the standard against which our words will be judged. So who all does James have in mind here as he speaks in verse 1? He simply says, teachers. Everyone who teaches God's people. But certainly, and most especially based on what we see in the rest of the New Testament, it's those who hold the teaching office of pastor, elder, overseer. Those are the three terms that are used interchangeably in the New Testament uh, to refer to this teaching office. Pastor, elder, overseer. Pastor is simply the word for shepherd. Elder, sometimes translated presbyter. And overseer, sometimes translated bishop. Pastor, elder, overseer. There's no confusion about the fact that uh, there's no distinction here between different offices. All three refer to one office. We have multiple passages uh, where all three terms are used interchangeably to refer to the same group of men within a given church. So whether you want to call them pastors, you want to call them elders, or you want to call them pastor elders, whatever the case, whatever you want to call them, it makes no difference in regard to what God expects of them and thus to what they will be held accountable on the last day. It's primarily a teaching office. This is why the two main lists of qualifications for pastor elders requires that they, quote, be able to teach, 1 Timothy 3.2, and that each must, quote, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it, Titus 1.9. Obviously, in order to, to hold firm to the truth as taught and to be able to, to teach that word to others and to be able to rebuke those who contradict it, in order to do that, every pastor elder must possess a, a basic mastery of God's word and a demonstrated giftedness in administering that word to others. Mastery of the word and giftedness in teaching it, is, well, those are vital aspects to keep in mind as we appoint individuals to this office, knowing that greater strictness awaits them in the judgment to come, and all other teachers in the coming judgment. 
Of course, James doesn't say this. He doesn't mean to scare everyone away from teaching in the church. He doesn't say not any of you should become teachers. He says not many. James himself is obviously teaching as he writes these sobering words. Someone has to. God has decreed that the word be preached when the church gathers. God has decreed that all people from children to adults be taught God's word by God's people. This is what a church is. It's a discipling community of faith, a teaching community. A vital part of the work of every church is to continually raise up new teachers, both those who will serve as pastor elders and those who teach in other ways, like stepping up to teach our children Sunday school classes. A request that went out, I think, this couple days ago in an email. We're looking for teachers to help teach our children the next semester that begins in September. This verse in James chapter 3, verse 1, is simply a warning to do this thoughtfully, with careful attention given to all that God has revealed and all that God has not revealed in His Word. Now, as we move through the passage, uh, whether James intends for this concern regarding teachers in verse 1 uh, to remain top of mind throughout verses uh, 2 through 13, or, or whether the, the topic of teachers within the church is, is simply one example of the need for a careful use of words that James then uses to launch into a broader discussion, well, it's not entirely clear. Most commentators think that teachers, with their many words, well, that's just an, a, a starting example that James gives. And verses 2 through 13 are directed at a much wider audience. It's Proverbs 10, verse 19 says, When words are many, sin is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So, directly applicable to all who teach. Words are many when we teach others. And when words are many, sin is not lacking. So we must be careful. Regardless of whether or not teachers are meant to remain top of mind throughout verses 2 through 13, there's no doubt that these verses have application to us all, to every aspect of our lives, for we all use words each and every day of our life. And as James says in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. James is saying that, that given the difficulty of controlling your own speech, the person who does so perfectly, well, that person has the self-control necessary to not stumble in anything. Or as Jesus puts it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good out of his mouth. The evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. The words that come out of your mouth are the clearest indication of the state of your heart. So if you can gain, gain mastery of your mouth, well, that means you've largely gained mastery of your heart. So then pay attention to what your tongue is telling you about your heart. Don't be quick to brush aside uh, your practice of having a loose tongue as though it's not a big deal. Think, oh, they're just words. Words are not all that consequential. But no, the, the tongue may seem to you to be a small part of your body and your life, but it directs the entire course of your life. Listen to the analogies that he gives again in, in verse 3. It says this, 
If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. You don't need to have ridden a horse, or really know anything about horses at all, to, to understand the analogy. So, for example, any children in the room who have, who have never ridden a horse, just imagine that you have a, a metal bar strapped between your teeth, and that someone behind you is holding the straps attached to each end of that bar. Well, you can see it doesn't take them much effort to turn you whatever direction they want. If you're able to control the, control the horse's mouth, you're able to control their whole bodies. If you're able to control your mouth, you're able to control your whole body. Analogy number two, verse four. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. Well, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Do you get the idea? Though a bit is very small in comparison to a thousand pound horse, though a rudder is very small in comparison to a multi-ton sea vessel, their influence is all out of proportion to their size. Well, so too, our tongues wield a disproportionate influence upon our lives. Proverbs 18, verse 7 that we read, A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Where you turn the bit, that's where the horse will go. Where you turn the rudder, that's where the ship will go. Where you turn your tongue, that's where your life will go. Turn the bit toward a cliff, the horse and its rider will die. Turn the rudder toward an iceberg, the ship and its captain will be destroyed. Turn your tongue toward evil, and your life will come to ruin. So to what are you turning your tongue, and thus your life? Is your tongue turned toward good, or is it turned toward evil? Are you using your tongue to build others up or to tear them down, to help or to harm, to heal or to wound? The use of our tongue determines the usefulness of our lives. The tongue is the rudder of our life, directing our course. It's the title of the sermon today, Life's Rudder. It is your tongue. In the last part of verse 5, uh, James provides a third analogy. So he's talked about a bit, he's talked about a rudder. He provides a third analogy of a small thing that exerts a power that's all out of proportion to its size. He says this, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. No matter how large it grows, every fire starts with a tiny little spark. And once started, oh, how far it can spread and what devastation it can cause. James continues, verse 6, The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. To say that, that our sinful speech is set on fire by hell seems primarily to mean that it's deserving of the punishment of hell. As Jesus also explained in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, speaking of the use of the tongue and speaking angry words against someone you call fool, 
you are liable to the hell of fire. Sinful words are no small matter. But the metaphor of fire graphically describes the degree of devastation that can be caused by a single utterance. Like a single tiny little spark can create a great conflagration that can overtake a forest. Well, so a single utterance can do great damage in this world. Nothing matches the destructive power of words. James continues, verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Part of the, the, the creation mandate given to humanity in Genesis chapter 1 is to subdue the earth, establishing dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Establish dominion. Bring order out of disorder. Extend God's garden paradise to cover the entire face of the globe. Taming the ox to, to pull the plow across the field and so forth. All for the sake of the flourishing of both man and beast. Living in harmony with one another and with the earth. In our industrialized society, we often lose sight of this. And so if, when we think of taming animals... Our minds probably go not to the, the, the agricultural field, but to zoos and, and circuses, right? This is, this is really the attraction of zoos and circuses. Think about it. It's great power under control. But even more impressive than the great power under control seen in a zoo or in a circus is the person who has tamed the tongue. For James continues, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. As King David wrote in Psalm 140, he says this, Evil men make their tongue sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of vipers. Words can sting and bring death like the bite of a poisonous snake. He says the tongue is a restless evil. That means at one moment it, it appears unthreatening. The next moment it strikes. It does this deadly damage. And oh, what damage can cause by some words. Words incite wars and genocide and the demise of civilizations. But words also can incite the demise of families and of churches. How many churches have collapsed due to the toleration of unhealthy speech? Whether it be false teaching, which spreads like gangrene, dominates so much of the New Testament, words that speak falsehood and bring death, that's one form of unhealthy speech that cannot be tolerated in a church. A second is a spiritual abuse by manipulative, self-serving leaders. It makes headlines in our days. Another kind of unhealthy speech that cannot be tolerated. A third would be divisive, grumbling factions seeking to thwart the work of ministry within a church. Fourth would be a pattern of gossip, spreading negative reports about others. They're so dominated our list of Proverbs from before. Fifth would be a pattern of slander. Slander, usually in the form of, of jumping to conclusions about somebody's motivations, about their intentions, about their desires. Jumping to conclusions about matters of the heart that cannot be proven. As you label it and make conclusions about it, that's slander. That's sinful judging. Unhealthy speech erodes the souls of all who engage in it, and it saps the joy and vitality of everyone else in the church. 
Churches that become marked by unhealthy speech rarely recover. It's the well-worn path of destruction and demise. And so it must be called out. It must be exposed with words, with speech. So there's a, a bit of a tension here. We must call out unhealthy speech without committing unhealthy speech. How can we tell the difference? Well, the most straightforward way uh, to, to test whether a critical negative word is deadly poison is whether you find your, yourself enjoying it. The most straightforward test on whether a critical negative word is poison is whether you find yourself enjoying it. So we read from Proverbs 26, 22 earlier, the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the inmost parts. If you're finding it enjoyable to speak negatively to or about someone in the church or uh, to hear a negative word spoken about somebody else as though you're chewing on a choice morsel, if you enjoy it, it's poison. Same goes for, for words spoken in anger. Not just grumbling and gossip and slander, but, but words spoken in anger, something that I'm guilty of in the recent past. Unhelpfully responding to the sins of others with words spoken in anger, it only pours gasoline on the fire. No matter how justified you feel your anger to be. But if instead of finding critical speech to be enjoyable, if it genuinely hurts you to see this person walking in air, and it's out of love that you're calmly seeking to bring correction, seeking their good, well, then you have the ingredients for godly medicine rather than deadly poison. But that raises a question. Is this even possible? If it's true that each of our tongues is full of deadly poison, could we use them as godly medicine? Didn't he just say that no human being can tame the tongue? Is he just writing this, this chapter to, to cause us to bemoan our, our helpless estate? No. Implicit in this entire passage is the possibility of something better. He's already commanded us to be slow to speak and slow to anger in chapter 1. He's going to conclude our passage today with, as it transitions into the next passage in verse 13 by saying, Who is wise and understanding among you? Well, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Speaking of what seems impossible as possible. Everything in the letter of James is building to chapter 4, verse 6. It's the climax of the whole letter where he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God gives grace. Meaning, not just forgiving grace for our sin, but transforming grace. Yes, even the grace to tame the tongue. This is actually hinted at in verse 8 when he declares, no human being can tame the tongue. No human being can tame the tongue. True, but God can he made it, as he told Moses. As Jesus said about a different struggle, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The work of grace that began in our new birth, when the Father of lights brings us forth by the word of truth, implanting his word deep within us. Well, that work of grace continues as the implanted word, as James puts it, continues to grow and to bear the fruit of self-control in gracious words. It's God, God wrought transformation within us that James's letter is all about. seems to be part of what is being communicated in the series of illustrations that close the final section of our passage. Let's turn there now. Verse 9. He says this, 
With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Saying the same tongue goes from being engaged in the highest form of speech, namely praising God on Sunday, to then be engaged in the lowest form of human speech, or one of them, on Monday, cursing someone made in God's image, cursing someone fearfully and wonderfully made by Him and for Him and in His likeness. Cursing here, it doesn't primarily mean profanity. Sometimes we hear the word cursing, we just think profanity. No, in its most narrow sense, cursing means calling down God's... um, Destruction upon somebody, calling upon him to destroy them. But more generally, it simply means speaking ill of somebody. Uh, giving expression to a desire for their harm rather than for their good. That's cursing. Seeking someone's harm rather than their good. And he says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. This is not God's design for our tongues. Paul commands us. He summarizes the use of our tongues in Ephesians 4.29 so clearly. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. We are to speak only to seek the good of others. We are to speak only to seek the good of others. And while it's true that nothing matches the power of words to tear down, it's also true that nothing matches the power of words to build up. Proverbs 16.24, Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, healing to the bones. Words can build up like nothing else can. James continues with these illustrations. Verse 11, Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water. Fresh water being drinkable, salt water not being drinkable. No, it's one or the other. So too our mouths should only pour forth sweet words, not bitter ones. Verse 12, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. As Jesus said in Matthew 12, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yes, but God's grace transforms our hearts. That's Jesus' point. That's James' point. God makes bad trees good. That's what He does. So just as you, you stick out your tongue and you say, ah, when you go to the doctor so they can diagnose your sickness from your tongue, well, in humility, stick out your tongue before your great physician. Let it reveal your sickness so that he may then heal it, replacing your deadly venom with life-giving honey. The most powerful tool that any of us have is our tongue. And thus, our use of that tool determines the usefulness of our lives. So let us speak only to seek the good of others. There's no greater good to seek than another's salvation as we share the life-giving words of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that He rose again, so that all who place their trust in Him 
will be forgiven their sins and given the promise of eternal life with Him forever. Let us be diligent to to regularly share these powerful, transforming words with each other and with others. Let us use this instrument, this tool for good, not evil. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your life-giving, powerful, transforming Word. Lord, plant Your Word deep in us that we may increasingly bear the fruit of gracious words. Words that bring sweetness to the soul and healing to the bones. Bless the preaching of Your Word. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.